Tonight's show is brought to you by the Museum of Native American History, located in Bentonville, Arkansas. Our supporters on Patreon, Vendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. Like, God, it's a good thing I wasn't alive in the freaking 1850s because I'd have been out there like, we're going to call this one the devil's butt crack. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our adventures and our wanderings and our wonderings. How are you guys doing tonight? I, for one, could not be happier to be back here in the studio. It is my pleasure to be here, I assure you. Um, It's been a crazy few weeks. As many of you noticed, you did not get a fresh episode last week, and I want to thank you guys for understanding about that. And from what I can tell from the um, statistics, it doesn't look like that it hurt any of your feelings that much because it has been a really, really well-downloaded episode. As much as I feel bad about dropping some of those old ones fresh in the feed, you guys seem to be enjoying them, and it's been a very useful tool for me because I've got a lot going on between school and everything else. You guys know the whole rigmarole. I've told you all about it. Um, it's kind of handy to go back to some of those early ones that are, I feel like, good enough to come back out and um, really give you guys something, especially most of you new listeners. I picked up most of you listeners in the last year or so, um, and I know that all of you have not gone back through the entire back catalog. And there's some little there's some little hidden gems back there in the early days, even amidst me stumbling and bumbling backwards through trying to figure out how to make a podcast. Um, anyway, I appreciate you guys being patient, um, but we are going to get into some fresh content here tonight before we get there i do want to just tell you guys a couple things that have been going on um i did just score a new sherpa collaboration a new travel collab um and it is for the museums of northwest arkansas so i'm super excited about that i told you guys about the one i did at the crescent we did a whole episode on it right um and this is really cool for me this is awesome for me because many of you who have been around since the beginning you kind of know the story, or if you've been to the webpage and read the blog, if you've not been to the webpage, you guys go to waywardstories.com and go to the blog and read the blog that says, what's this all about? It will give you an idea of what this project means to me, where it was born out there in the icy, cold, clear creek um, of Limekiln Creek out in Big Sur in California, where I kind of figured out who I was and what I wanted to do with myself. Getting these travel writing blogs are not blogs. They're not blogs. They're actually articles. They're just on a website. They're travel articles of a sort. Um, it's a really cool, actually, you could go to Sherpa and check out the old Wayward Sun. It's a really cool interactive website type of situation. It's really neat what they're doing, and I'm really happy to be a part of that. Um, but I scored a new one. But these, getting these travel writing gigs, for me, like it's kind of the culmination of, you know, setting a goal, realizing I wanted to do something. And then working for it and then actually starting to see it be realized. So it's super exciting. Um, and it's great for you guys because it gives me reasons to go places I might not have otherwise been prompted to go or known about. Um, and then I get to bring you some new information and somewhere cool new for you to check out. So we got a new one going on and we're going to talk about that some in the first part of tonight's episode. Tonight's episode is going to be a little bit of a potpourri of a sort. It's going to be about Devil's Den State Park for the most part. That's going to be the preponderance of the episode. 
um, as you saw in the title. But in the first half, we're going to talk about a couple of other things that have been going on. Because all these things, like Devil's Den itself, is not an entire hour-long episode. I'm sorry. It's just not. It's a really cool place, and you guys are going to hear all about it. But I just could not find a way to stretch it into an entire hour-long episode as many times as I've been there. And as much as I've done there. It's an awesome place, but it's just not an hour-long episode. So it's been one of those I've been mentioning forever that's sitting out there on the back burner that I'll make someday. Um when the proper inspiration comes along and what it finally just dawned on me is there's not going to be a proper inspiration for this one. You're going to have to work it into another episode, but I want to be able to call the episode devil's den state park because I like to promote Arkansas stuff. I live in this state. We have some great things and this not episode is going to be about devil's den. But before we get there, we're going to have a couple of other subjects, probably take up the first half of the episode all outdoors. It's not a bunch of housekeeping. So chill out Alice it's gonna be okay we're still gonna talk about some cool places you can go check out um, and some cool things you can go try to do and I'm also gonna catch you up on how the archaeological dig went for me because that was super super awesome and that's kind of how the episode's gonna go down and we're gonna kind of get right into it um the only thing I want to say to wrap up any little bit of what we might call housekeeping is you guys continue to support the show and I thank you so much for that keep sharing these podcast episodes and these YouTube videos into your groups because those garner us more listeners and more likes and more follows and more subscriptions than you can imagine. It goes so far. So if you like an episode and you know a group that you're a part of on Facebook or wherever that you think it might be appreciated or the people there might get something out of it, by all means, please share. And if you'd like to support us monetarily doing this independent artist thing while working and going to school like a normal human, go over to patreon.com forward slash wayward stories. Beyond that, let's get into tonight's show. So first of all, let's talk about how the dig went. I got to go do my first archaeological dig and I can't tell you guys how much I loved it. I can't tell you how excited I am about it to have got to experience that and be a part of it. You know, I always my entire life, I think I wanted to probably be an archaeologist. I grew up literally in the shadow, not literally, kind of close to literally, but not fully literally, of the Spiral Mounds archaeological site in eastern Oklahoma, which is one of the most like single most important archaeological sites. In North America for a lot of reasons. Um, Of course, that's arguable on many fronts, but I promise you it's in the top 10. It's a big deal. It's a big dang deal. Um, And so every field trip was to the Spiral Mountains. You know, at a very early age, I was was introduced to that. Um, And I think the mystery I always felt of like, oh my gosh, so people made these. And what were those people like? And, you know, they have little ideas that they can kind of tell you. And we also knew you learned about grave robbing. And how people came in in the 1930s before legitimate scientific analysis could be done of it with a backhoe, dug it out to the central chamber and found a wealth of goods that was so great that it was called the King Tut's Tomb of the West. You must understand this was just after King Tut's tomb had been found and it is like one of the richest grave um, mortuary practice sites that's ever been opened. Like it was a huge deal all around the world. That's how big a deal Spyro was right here in eastern Oklahoma was it was likened to that because the wealth of goods that were sold at Hawk 
to institutions all over the world where those pieces reside to this day. The Louvre in France, you may have heard of it. There's pieces from Spiral there, at least one that I know of. They're in, oh my God, the Smithsonian, you name it. They're all over the world. They're all over the world because they were selling them, just selling them to anyone that would take it. It was black market crap. This was before Nagpur by like 50 years. This was before people showed really any amount of respect. Archaeology was in its earliest formative stages. It was still almost in its own right, a pseudoscience of its day. You know, people weren't about that. They're like, hey, this is my land. I want to dig the crap out of that mountain and spell it. And that's how they looked at it. It was crap. It wasn't like irreplaceable cultural heritage. It was crap to them. It was a way to make money. And and, I don't want to say in their defense, but kind of in their defense. It was the 1930s and it was the Depression. And if you had some on your land, it was going to make you money and your children weren't going to starve to death. When you went home every night and looked at their little skeletal frames staring at you, starving. I don't want to make excuses for what they did, but they did a lot of things out of ignorance and necessity. And as an anthropologist, it's kind of my job to point out that not necessarily everything is an excuse, but sometimes there's a reason. And sometimes for those people in their context, culturally relative, It was kind of reasonable at that time, given what information they had to work with. Anyway, I'm going to quit boring you guys with anthropology and archaeology soon enough. But my point is, I never thought I would actually get to be an archaeologist because life kind of dictated. No, you're not. You don't get to do anything. We're going to throw obstacles out here that no one can overcome. You know, you're not even going to know half the obstacles. You're not even going to be able to understand them. But here we are at 42 years old. And I've taken on anthropology, and it just so happens that archaeology falls under the umbrella of anthropology. And it's like something that's an avenue of something I can explore. You know, life dictates at this moment, I can't go do it for a living because the only real jobs are chasing like CRM, cultural resource management, which is like running all over the country doing digs in front of like major construction progress. projects to make sure that nothing's going to be destroyed that shouldn't be destroyed can't really do that with a daughter in you know real life and it's hard it's hard for the people that can do it um but i can certainly be involved in it and as it turns out so can you in many many places they really love volunteers matter of fact look at this shirt i got at my very first dig 60 plus years volunteers that's the arkansas archaeological societies one of their t-shirts because they're built on the labor of volunteers and many places are they are called avocationalists and you can go out there and they will run you through a training program and teach you how to pull artifacts out of the ground how to screen artifacts how to clean artifacts and you can actually be a part of archaeology without having to have a phd a massive debt load from school um and like 11 years that you know 10 or 11 years you've spent just going through all this stuff to get to the point of being a phd which is kind of what I always assumed no you can actually just go out there and volunteer and they will train you up in the actual discipline of it it's very fascinating and in many places you can be a part of it and arkansas is one of those states super friendly to volunteers it's awesome it's awesome and i'm going to tell you how awesome because all this has probably been boring to most of you that's fine i'm a nerd you may not be But it is outdoor related in many ways because you do it all outdoors for the most part. And it's a part of my evolution, part of my story where I started this podcast over two years ago, 70 episodes ago. We're on 71 tonight, like and even before this podcast started back when it was just a YouTube channel. 
it's an evolution to where I'm going. And I just got to do the coolest thing ever. And because it's my podcast, you, of course, reserve the right to pause it or skip forward. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I did, because to me, it's fascinating. And I think you'll find it fascinating, too. And maybe see archaeology in maybe a little bit different light. And maybe you might get out there and participate or support it, at least, because it's a very, very important discipline, at least in my eyes and the eyes of many others. But anyway, so I go down there. On the weekend, that's why we had to drop that other episode in old episodes, because I was not going to have time to record. I went, rolled in there Friday night by the seat of my pants after I got off work, got busy Saturday and Sunday, and wasn't going to be home till late Sunday night. So a podcast episode was not happening. But it was totally worth it for the implications it could have for my future careers, my career path, and for really my development as a human being. But let me tell you something. Day one. I get there. I go through orientation and they put me into the lab because I'm right there at the University of Arkansas, Cossatot on campus. And they put me into the lab and y'all, the very first basket of things, basket of artifacts that I washed that came in from the site was full of pottery, as was every other bag that came in. As a matter of fact, this dig's been going on off and on sporadically for over 40 years or roughly 40 years. As they've been, and this was the year they were going to try to wrap it up, get down to native earth and figure out, you know, how far back does this go and what all can we get out here? They've had this kind of, kind of slogan for it, which is just more sherds than dirt. And the idea is we, you call pottery fragments sherds, glasses, shards, sherds is pottery. And I'd learned that myself this last weekend because it was a question I had. Why is pottery assured? Well, because that's how you differentiate it from glass. Because you can also find glass in historical context, etc., etc. Anyway, every bag that came out was full. More sherds than dirt. There was literally more sherds than dirt. It was broken pottery in piles. Y'all, like probably tens of thousands of pieces of, proper, of pottery over all these years. And like the very first one that... I washed with my own hands with these awesome shirts, some big ones, y'all, some real big ones. And you could see the hand dimpling. Like you could see how they put designs into this pottery before they fired it to bake it, right? You could see, I mean, you could see essentially their thumbprints, guys. You could see fingernail marks where they used a fingernail to go around the rim and make a, make a little bit of a decoration. And you could tell it was a human fingernail that had been pressed into that clay. There is no more potent of a connection to someone who lived between five and 700 years ago than that. And that's the time frame we're talking. We're talking pre-contact to just a little bit post-contact, like somewhere around 1300 from one of the papers I read about this specific site, possibly, all the way up until 1550, 1600. So there's a 300 year span there where this pottery is coming out of the ground from. I'm holding a piece of pottery that's between five and 700 years old with the workings obviously visible in it. But when you look closely, you can see that their finger, again, essentially prints. Like it's where they use their thumb to create indentions. It's where they use their thumb and forefinger to put little like pinch kind of rolls all the way around this is decorated pottery my first go i've got like 500 year old pottery in my hands making a direct connection to the last time that it was ever touched was by someone five to seven hundred years ago of the caddo nation in southwest arkansas holy crap y'all 
This is at the tail end of the Mississippian period. This is at the time that the, the populations are going to start collapsing because of European contact and the disease that they were not able to compensate for in their bodies because they had no, no, no accumulated immunity to it. They'd never been exposed to it. And it wiped out like 90 to 95% of the whole population of North America. And in some cases, even more in Central and South America. Brutal. But this was at the tail end of their, really, their, kind of their peak in a lot of ways. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I got to touch that. On my very first go, I got to touch that. I got to wash bag after bag after bag. Then, day two, they went out there and they threw me in a pit. Quite literally. Said, all right, your first go, well, we might as well dive in feet first. And they put me into one of the units. And y'all, I sat there with the trial and I did real archaeology. Under the very tightly guided supervision of very, very knowledgeable people. But I literally drug a trowel through that dirt and pulled pottery out of the ground myself and bone fragments, not human bone fragments, like bird, reptile, turtle. It, it was an ancient salt making site. I say ancient. It's not really ancient. It is prehistory, pre-contact. Pre-contact's the proper term these days. Salt making site for the cattle people because they figured out they needed salt to live. And they figured out here's a salt spring. If we boil the water off, look, we got all this salt left in the bottom of these, these ceramic jugs, ceramic jars. And that's why there's so many pottery sherds there. It's because they boiled it in those, in those pottery. And then the pottery would break under heat eventually. Or sometimes they had to break it to get the salt out. And so it was literally just a giant refuse pile of broken pottery. And you want to talk about take you back through the ages and tell you a lot about the cultural practices, the iconography, the actual, just the culture of the Caddo people at that time. Anyway, it was fascinating. The dig went awesome. I can't wait to do it again. I was so happy that I got the two short days that I got to kind of get my feet wet, get to meet some people, get to, to make a few connections and get to kind of figure out what's going on. So when I get more time, to go back into more digs it'll be all the more all the more beneficial i'll be able to get so much more out of it and also contribute so much more so that's going to be super awesome for my future career as an interpreter a historian an anthropologist to have real hands-on experience with archaeology that is enormous that's enormous and i'm super excited about it and i i totally totally urge any of you that have any interest whatsoever to look into it. Avocational archaeology is a real thing and a lot of places live on the support of volunteers or your dollars to help fund those digs because most states it turns out are more interested in pumping money into their their politicians pockets. I'm sorry public infrastructure is what I meant to say to actually put money into education and the furtherance of the understanding of humanity. So anyway if you're interested at all look into that. Maybe something you'd never heard of. So let's move on from that. Now that I got to geek out on you a little bit, it's just so you know, it was totally, to me, it was worth it. It was totally worth it. It was awesome. Totally awesome. But let's move on. Something else that is going to be here in the first half of the episode. Let's talk about the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville, Arkansas, because that's a good segue. It's related. Um, That's the first museum that I visited for my new Sherpa collab that I mentioned earlier. And... I just want to tell you guys about it because you need to go check it out. 
you come to our state, you come to Northwest Arkansas, which is where pretty much everything's popping. Bentonville's right there in the heart of it. And if you guys like history at all, or you're at all interested in, say, maybe your heritage, maybe you have some indigenous background, or maybe you just want to know more. This museum is so first rate, guys. And like the mission behind it is what blows me away. The man who owns it is a local businessman in NWA, but he is also a card carrying Cherokee. And he has a massive personal collection of artifacts that go all the way back to our earliest known at this moment, because that is constantly changing as we find more and we dig deeper. The earliest known peoples in North America around 22,000 years ago, okay, all the way forward to modern day. This collection is immense. It is beautiful. And it is incredibly well curated. And it's free. You heard that right. It's free for you, the general public, to come and check out. Why? I asked him about this. I'm writing an article, right? I was like, and he wasn't there. I asked some of his work. And I was like, why? Why? What's this guy about? And they told me he is Cherokee Indian, Cherokee native. And he wanted to offer this collection as a way to educate people. And he kind of believes, which I think is kind of awesome, that, you know, education maybe should be free. Maybe knowledge should be like a universal, you know, human <clears throat> kind of, you know, thing that everyone deserves. Um, not just rich people that can afford that or poor college kids who are going to go into $100,000 in debt and never get a job and pay off that debt. He believes in education. And I can support that. But... It's free. And honestly, y'all, I've seen some amazing museums in my travels with Big Purple when I was all over this freaking country. You know me by now. I'm a nerd. What did I do with my free time? I went to historical museums. I went to Native American museums. I went to all of the places. That's the stuff I love. And I have not seen one that is this well done. And with my knowledge of, you know, a whole lifetime of both amateur and now professional studies over Native Americans and indigenous cultures, I can tell you it is incredibly well curated. It is accurate to the most current knowledge we have, which again, the very leading edge of is always shifting because those deposits keep getting deeper and deeper. For a billion years, Clovis was the first culture here by God, and that's the story. And then someone thought, what if I dig deeper than Clovis? And then they found stuff. And they were like, wow, someone was here before them. Controversial for a while, but at this point, still controversial to some. But it's kind of embarrassing at this point, anyone who wants to argue against it. Because the mountain of evidence is indeed that a mountain at this point. It's really cool. And they incorporate that in there. And they take you on this tour. Well, you take yourself on this tour, but it is curated so that you walk yourself through this tour from the early archaic, from the pre-Clovis, all the way to the modern day. So you see in these artifacts, and y'all, I'm talking not just lithic point, you know, not just lithics, not just eccentrics, not just arrowheads, not just... Um, scrapers, like grinders, not just those things that you've come to expect, but like pottery, y'all, like effigy pipes. There are things in that museum 
they're absolutely mind-blowing. And it's not just his private collection. He actually has things on loan from some major institutions. Yes, there are things there on loan from the University of Arkansas and from private collectors. Y'all, I cannot say enough about how beautiful and how well done this museum is. I've never seen anything like it in all my travels. In all my studies, I've never seen anything this well done. And this dude did it for the benefit of his own tribe, for one thing. And his own peoples, the indigenous peoples, to try to further understanding of them and their history and their place on this continent and their stake to this continent. But also just to educate people in general. And he's offering it for free. That is incredible to me. They deserve to be checked out. You should go check them out. And you should probably put some money in their little donation box like I did. Okay, because that is an awesome, awesome mission and one that's worthy of being supported. And I promise you, they're going to show you a good time that you're never going to forget like this. It will blow you away, even if you're not that interested in Native American history. You might find out you're really interested in Native American history because some of the things you will see, some of the pottery, some of the effigy pipes is so intricately done and so masterfully done. And that you understand that it was done without the age of any kind of machinery no mechanics whatsoever it was all done by hand it will absolutely mind boggle you it is amazing so go check out the museum of native american history when you come to nwa as you said you've listened to so many of my episodes you've listened to petty jean you've listened to eden falls lost valley it's all in nwa baby so when you come go check out the museum of native american history all right, let's talk about one more thing before we go into the break, and then we will hit up Devil's Den. Um, I just learned a new thing. It's not really a new thing. Actually, I knew it 20 years ago, but I never got into it. Um, Geocaching. You guys do geocaching? It's freaking awesome. Like, for my daughter, it's awesome. Like, I'm always trying to find ways to get my girl outside, right? Like, I think a lot of us fight with that because of iPads and technology and all that. And, you know, I've told you the story about how excited I was. I was actually on the Petty Jean episode that she wanted to see Native American rock art. And I knew just where to take her. And it just happened to be in an Arkansas State Park. That day born a love of adventure into her. And I take her somewhere every stinking weekend now. But there's only so far you can go out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, like with this kid. You know, I mean, I could take her further, but she's like eight. Okay, so I'm trying to gradually get her into this where we can go spend entire weekends on adventures. Okay, but she's not quite there yet. Um, But we keep branching out a little further and further. But we've really, really gone through the slate of local stuff. You know what I mean? And we go out and we find fossils in the creeks and stuff. And that's something we're going to talk about someday in an episode. We may have an episode at some point called Adventures or something like that. Because I've gotten really creative in finding good adventures for her. But one thing I discovered with this child is... Because we've been watching My Little Pony, y'all, for like five years. Okay? And Paw Patrol and all that stuff. And let me tell you, My Little Pony, I am a freaking connoisseur, y'all. I'm an expert in My Little Pony. And I will say, till the day I die, that this world would be a better place... If the whole world, like, just adhered to the basic tenets preached by My Little Pony. Be nice to each other. Be understanding of each other. Quit being Richards, essentially. You know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, I'm just kind of over it. And I realized after we went on the hike to go see the Native American rock art, right? 
I was like, oh my gosh, I might be able to get her into some of the shows I like. Because the shows I like are all the stuff you're going to find on like Discovery Plus or something where they're more documentary than they are anything. And people out there exploring, you know, ancient civilizations in Central America or whatever. And so I stumbled upon my old homeboy, Josh Gates. I am a stan. I'm a total fanboy for Josh Gates. And I'll openly admit that. But I was like, oh my gosh, Expedition Unknown. I bet she will love this. And she did. And we've been watching these episodes. And he is always going and finding, like, these great adventures. These great American legends. And, I mean, no, worldwide. I say American legends. Worldwide. And a lot of them are, like, pirate treasure. Like, the pirate Jean Lafitte out of Louisiana, which is an awesome story in its own right. But, like, and they go... And they, they investigate, and a lot of times, interestingly, they find some stuff. And it's fascinating, and it's so much fun, and my daughter absolutely loves it. So, I was trying to figure out some things to do with her recently, and Jess was like, why don't you, why don't we take her geocaching? And I was like, oh my god, what an idea. See, I stumbled onto geocaching 20 years ago, like wait, more, 22, 23 years ago. I was like probably 20, 21. And I actually stumbled into it by accidentally finding one when I was exploring around top of Cavanaugh Mountain one day. It's like, what the hell is this? And I opened it up and it was like a geocache. And it said, you know, like official geocache log. So I looked it up. Fascinating, but I just didn't really care for it. I did not get into it. And a GPS was garbage back then. I had like a $400 Garmin unit. And it was garbage compared to what we have today. That thing was like 400 bucks, standalone. Only one job in the world, and it was terrible at it, right? Um, so it's like this whole new thing, but I had forgotten about it because I just never got into it. It just never really interested me for whatever reason. And she was like, why don't we take her to go geocaching? And it just was like light bulb, ding, like no freaking kidding. She's eight. She will love this. You go find a box got a log in there where you can put your name and it's got a bunch of little trinky trinkets at least some of them do the bigger ones that you get to take something out of it and you get to put something back in it and it's like finding a treasure right so i was like heck yeah let's take the child geocaching and we sure enough did and y'all she loved it we found three on our first outing by the way they're freaking everywhere and with a little work and a little smarts, little a few smarticle particles in your head, you can start to look, especially if you're talking about taking younger kids out there that you kind of need a payoff, right? You kind of want a payoff. You don't want to take them out there and it come to nothing. You kind of need a payoff to keep them hooked, right? A little bit of research and some smart particles and you look at these and you kind of learn how to read them. You want a bigger cache so that there's probably going to be stuff in it for them to take something and to put something back in. It could just be a cool rock they found in the creek. We have bunches of those. God, I've got boxes of cool rocks mine has found in a creek. Um, and then you can look and see when was the last access, when was it last found, and if it was, you know, in the last four to six months, you're like, ooh, it's pretty fresh, it's probably still there. Like, there's little ways, you'll figure it out. Your first go, we figured out, okay, we need to avoid those, we need to aim for these, this is the way to kind of give us the best chances, the best odds of finding something. And y'all, we found three the first day, and that girl loved it. She freaking loved it. I mean, you talk about grinning like a poop-eating possum from ear to ear. She absolutely loved it. And I just wanted to, like, bring it up to you guys. I know you've heard of geocaching. If y'all are outdoors people, I know you heard of it. Everybody's heard of it, right? But have you really thought about it? Have you really thought about it as a way to engage your children with the outdoors? A freaking treasure hunt for them? You know? 
where they get to take a little trinkety trinket out. They get to put a little tchotchke back in. Have you considered it? Because you should. It is a awesome way to get a child excited about going outside and have a payoff for them and make them want to go back for more. Like, I cannot believe that it hadn't already occurred to me to try that. We've been taking out metal detector. We've been doing all these things, just going out looking for little things. But these are like kind of guaranteed. You find the right ones, you're kind of guaranteed you're going to find what you're looking for. And that's going to make that kid happy as can be. You know what I mean? Anyway, we had a lot of fun. And I expect to have a whole lot more fun. And even at that, we went to one that we didn't get to pull off because the brush was so thick that it's the kind of brush that you're going to go around even if you're looking for a missing person because ain't nobody making it in there. Okay. So we were like, listen, we need to come back and winter for this one. But that one was in an old CC camp, CCC camp out there in the middle of the woods at one of our local things that was built by the Civilian Conservation Corps. But it's not a state park. So like that camp's literally just abandoned in the woods, just abandoned. How cool is that going to be when we get to go back when the, the briars aren't chest high, go out there with a machete and there aren't rattlesnakes everywhere and copperheads. It'll be awesome in the winter. But this is something I'm like, this is going to take us to see things that we maybe didn't even know existed. And that's kind of some of the things geocaches are known for is being put in really cool places to get people to come out to them. So anyway, consider geocaching with you and your kids, man. Those kids are gone. I love it. And that's actually a great segue into the break into the next half of the episode where we're going to talk about Devil's Den because Devil's Den was built to its current status by the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, under the authority of the Works Progress Administration, WPA site. So that's a good segue. So we're going to wrap up the first half of the episode here at about 34 minutes. And we will catch you guys on the other side of the break where we will talk all about Devil's Den State Park. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics a brand based right here in the good old U.S. of A., Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. 
So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash Optics. And that I highly suggest, whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through our sponsor break. All righty. Let's get into talking about Devil's Den State Park. Devil's Den is an amazing state park. It is one of the better Arkansas state parks, in my humble opinion. They've got a lot there. Like a whole lot. They've got a, a little bit of everything for a little bit of everyone. Um, there are caves. There's mountain biking. There's hiking. Um, which, granted, the caves are closed. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Most of the caves are. There are a great many that you can find if you uh, get a little bit adventurous and go into the backcountry. Um, but they have a little bit of everything. Y'all, it's a great place for a day hike. It's a great place to take the family for a picnic. It's a great place to take the kids to swim. It's a great place to go do some overnight hiking, like in some extreme mountain biking. We're going to get into all of that. But it, it really is like a really, really special place. Um, in Arkansas, it's one of our just... It's one of our best state parks. That's my personal opinion. I absolutely love it at Devil's Den. And I've spent a lot of time there over the years, over many years, a couple of decades on and off. Anyway, I'm going to start off by reading you basically the deets, the details as given by the state parks website. And well, actually not their website. I'm going straight off of the literature from the park. We were just there a few weeks ago. Well, maybe a couple of months ago now. But I think that is the best place to get it from because they're going to give a really good overview synoptic you know synopsis and then i can kind of style on it a little bit i can tell you some stories about my times up there and things that i've done with my daughter up there so we're just going to try to treat it that way so there's going to be a little bit of reading in here in this half of the episode but i assure you it's all going to be informative and if you do anything at all outdoors devil's den has something for you so stick around and Learn about a little gym that we have here hidden in the Ozarks in northwest Arkansas. And it would be a great place for any of you people regionally to come bring your families for a weekend, especially a long weekend. Because, again, there's a whole lot to do there. So anyway, from the state park itself's literature, Devil's Den State Park. Deep in a valley of the rugged Boston Mountains of northwest Arkansas is Devil's Den State Park. This 2,500-acre park provides some of the most spectacular Ozark Mountain scenery in the state. The park's creeks, crevices, caves, and overlooks connect you to the constant geologic forces that shape this rugged terrain. Lee Creek spills its cool, clear waters over the rocky valley floor with its downward flow, slowed only by a picturesque native stone dam. The park cafe, store, and swing pool overlook the peaceful 8-acre lake formed by the dam. Modern and primitive campsites, picturesque cabins, picnic areas, hiking, equestrian, and mountain biking trails, and fishing areas form a vacation setting second to none. Lee Creek was selected for a state park in 1933. The park's major facilities were constructed as a works project administration project by the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. In the 1970s, the park underwent a major facelift during which the stone and log structures of the 1930s were renovated and preserved for use today and into the future. Walk in the foot, 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 walk in the footsteps. <laughs> Ooh, it's a football. Walk in the footsteps of the CCC here, where hard work and craftsmanship created a park that is seamless with the landscape. 
Whether you study the architecture, hike the trails, attend interpretive programs, explore the valley's unique geologic formations, or lounge by the pool, memories of your stay here will bring you back time and again. Okay, there's more to read here, but I'm stepping out for a minute. Y'all, it really is cool. And when they did those renovations, no, they, they literally renovated and preserved. It's actually the whole area is like the whole park is on the National Register of Historic Places. Like it's a gorgeous job that they did there. All of the facilities are very, you know, they're very true and original to the original construction. It's awesome. Okay. It's an awesome, awesome place. Um, and gosh, what was I reading about? Oh, they, they received an award. Um, for the architectural style, like, cause it does, it mentions it flows seamlessly with the landscape. Y'all, it fits right in the native stonework, the log cabins. It's beautiful. It's rustic and it's beautiful. Anyway, a little bit about the rest of the park. So you guys can have an idea of everything that's going on there. Lodging near the stream along the Rocky Valley are 17 rustic cabins ranging from studios, one, two, and three bedrooms with fully equipped kitchens plus air conditioning and heat. Sit in front of a stone fireplace on a chilly evening or sit outside and listen to the chatter of wildlife. For the more rustic at heart, nine camper cabins are located in Area B. These single-room cabins have a bunk bed, a table, and chairs. They are heated and air conditioned and sleep up to four people. Each cabin has an attached front porch, a grill, and a campfire ring for outdoor cooking. These cabins are built around a common bathhouse that is shared with cabin and camper guest. For camping, along the valley floor, there are 117 sites offered. Many sites have electrical water and sewer hookups. A sanitary trailer dump is, station is located near Area E. Hike-in campsites are also available for the adventuresome, and a group area is reservable. You can also bring your horse and use the horse camp loaded, like, located near the riding trails, and they meander through the Ozark National Forest. There are food service, there is a cafe there, a gift shop, camping and picnic supplies are sold there, and it is housed in a rustic log and stone building overlooking the lake. They are only open seasonally, so you'd have to check with the park to um, make sure that they are open and operating during the time you plan to vis visit. Y'all, there's so much cool stuff in Devil's Den State Park. They have interpretive services. They have all these trails. Okay, miles and miles of hiking trails, multiple use trails, and they wind through the park and surround the Ozark National Forest or surrounding Ozark National Forest. There is a 15-mile Butterfield hike. Y'all, it is hardcore. Okay, I've done big sections of it. Yellow Rock Overlook is something everyone, everyone should see. But they have mountain biking trails as well. As a matter of fact, Arkansas is where or in devil's den is where arkansas mountain biking was kind of born and they've had an ongoing kind of festival there a ride for like at least 33 years maybe a little bit longer i could not ascertain the date on the article i read about it just recently but they've been doing mountain biking there for a long time and they've got some extreme trails and we're going to talk about that too but anyway the bigger picture on devil's den I'm going to tell you guys a few stories here about some of my times at Devil's Den. One by one, I used to go to Devil's Den when you could still go in the caves. You cannot anymore. I'm sorry to inform you of that. That's why many, many people want to go to Devil's Den. This is very important to take note of. Because if you go online right now and you Google, is Devil's Den Caves open? One of the first 
search results you're going to get is going to take you to a site that says you can give yourself a self-guided tour of the longest cave devil's den or you can wait and have a guided tour etc etc and it says right at the top of the page arkansas state parks that didn't sound right to me those caves have been closed for well as i just found out this afternoon about 14 years i remember going in those caves i have been all through those caves back in the day when they were still open when i was in my early 20s but they closed them 14 years ago and they to my knowledge had not reopened so i'm looking at this website going wait wait did something change because i know the white nose syndrome's calming down and on the caves out in the eastern states did they actually open them up something didn't feel right and I was about to make a podcast where I'm going to talk to people that listen to me from literally all over the world. And some of you guys go do the things I talk about. So I was like, I've got to know the facts on this. So I called the park. They were still open. It was like five minutes till five. They were about to close the doors on a Sunday afternoon. But I got someone and asked and she was like, nope, they are still closed. And I even asked, you know, a little further, like, do you have any kind of ideas? Do you guys think like maybe in the next five years, 10 years, do you have anything? Is it just super open ended? And she was like, essentially, it's very open ended. While we wait to see, you know, if these bat populations that have been decimated by white nose syndrome out east are going to recover. And we're going to wait and see if things kind of you know, if things kind of even out and it starts to get to a place where we feel safe to open the caves again, because essentially people are carrying the white nose syndrome, these fungi and these spores into the caves where it's killing off these entire bat populations. And let me tell you guys something from an ecological standpoint, we don't want a world without bats. I don't care how much you don't like them or how scared you are that one's going to fly into your hair or how little creepy guys look, you know, when you see them up close. I don't care about any of that. What I do care about is it will be an ugly world without bat populations. Okay. White nose syndrome threatened many of them. And we happen to have in Devil's Den State Park, we happen to have three endangered species of bats. So they are closed for the health and well-being of the bat population because you don't want a world without bats. A world without bats looks like a world of mosquitoes that are now the size of bats. I don't think anybody wants that. Or horse flies. Oh my god, can you imagine a horse fly the size of a bat? Uh so we like bats, we need bats, and we're trying to keep the bats that we have. So the caves are still closed. The opening date is totally open-ended nobody has any idea you could probably wait another 10 years who knows but there are caves and i'm here to tell you from personal experience there are caves you can go in in the region um and say the butterfield hiking trail there are some caves all i'm saying is if you get out and get adventurous on some of those hikes you know do so responsibly carry a lot of water da 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 da, da. but there are caves that you can you can explore out in those mountains you just have to go find them and i'm definitely not telling you where they are because let me tell you something, I have seen the devastation wrought upon incredible natural wonders by idiots with beers in their hands and a can of spray paint. I'm not going to tell you. If you want it, you got to go work for it. If you got to work that hard for it, there's a good chance you're not out there with a beer in your hand and a can of spray paint. It's a screener. Deal with it. Anyway, I absolutely love this park. One of the great things, like there's so many great things. You can swim, like there's great swimming for the kids. But one of the awesome things is if you love photography, y'all, if you, especially if you like some long exposure, and God help us, iPhone now. Oh, 
I don't even, we don't even need to talk about that tonight, but I'm dealing with like an existential crisis sitting here with a thousand dollar Canon camera in one hand. And the thing that I call people with and send text messages in the other, and the one that calls and sends text messages is taking just as good of photographs as the thousand dollar standalone dedicated camera. And it hurts my soul because I love the process of photography. I love figuring out apertures. I love figuring out exposure rates. I love it. But my phone's way easier, way faster. And it takes just as good a picture. Better. Better. And I mean, to be fair, for any of you real photographers out there, you do know what I know. Which is there's not nearly as much data in those camera photos. And if you zoom in, it's all of a sudden blurry. It only looks good on your iPhone screen, on Instagram, or whatever. TikTok, however you're sharing them. If you blow it up, it looks horrible. Because there's not enough data there. I mean, honestly, it's kind of a cheapskate way because the camera's actually taking most of the photograph. It's exposing it for you, and it's adding data that's not there. A whole lot of the picture you're taking that looks incredible was actually conceived of by the algorithm and the program and the camera and painted in there for you, essentially. It is kind of BS, but they look awesome. And for someone like me, I got to deal with it because, like, listen, do you know how many how much data is in a single picture through my Canon camera? There are websites like I do this stuff for Sherpa. Y'all, their pictures are too big. I'm over here having to freaking figure out how to convert them to the best possible resolution at the smallest possible size to upload it. But if I take it with my camera, it looks like a professional took it and I can just upload it right. Let's just send it right in there. So like it only makes sense for me to take the pictures with my camera, but it freaking gives me this existential crisis my puritanical soul for like photography or whatever. But anyway, anyway, you can take long exposure with your iPhone. Now it'll be a lot better if you put it on a tripod, just FYI, you can Google it, look it up for yourself. I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, but if you like long exposure, the dam at devil's den is gorgeous. And if you'll go over to Instagram.com forward slash wayward stories, you won't have to look very far to see several pictures of devil's den with flowing water that I took myself, some with my standalone thousand dollar Canon camera and some with this stupid iPhone that I'm making this podcast on right now. They're all awesome. Devil's den is beautiful. And that dam is so cool. And it was built by hand by men one well 90 say what not what was the date on it 33 37 anyway 80 to 90 years ago you know we're pushing 100 years old it's gorgeous and it is really really picturesque kids be careful with your kids and keep an eye on them but it's a blast for kids to climb around on because those some of those blocks are gigantic and you can literally like they're like three to four feet tall you can like stair step your way up and down the dam and get right up next to the water like some of the pictures i've got that i love was me out there on the dam right there next to the flowing water and that water flows hard y'all when it's moving it's really cool and it's fun kids love it you just got to keep an eye on them don't let them go up there without your supervision if they're too young because it's very dangerous as well um let's see you might be thinking what is like the history of devil's den where'd that name come from you know we've talked about this before it's been probably three dozen episodes ago but we've mentioned this before everywhere in the world is a devil's something like there's the devil's ice box there's devil's den there's the devil's ice chest the devil's freezer the devil's bathtub like god it's a good thing i wasn't alive in the freaking 1850s because i'd have been out there like we're gonna call this one the devil's butt crack like 
and it would have stuck because who wouldn't love to go into the devil's butt crack? I mean, quite honestly, I'm surprised that there's not a devil's butt crack in Uranus, Missouri, Fudge Factory. We talked about that a couple episodes ago, but it's the devil's everything. I vaguely remember, because I have been a folklorist of a sort my entire life. I vaguely remember Devil's Den having a backstory about why it was called Devil's Den. And it was one of those really cool, beautiful, you know, romantic backstories about somebody running into the devil. I could have sworn that existed and I knew that backstory. But through all of my research that I did this afternoon to try to find that story, couldn't find it anywhere. Not a single word. It was complicated by the fact that apparently there's a Devil's Den like a sinkhole spring in Florida that people love to scuba dive in. If you're into scuba diving, check that out. You could go dive into Devil's Den. And there's also a place called Devil's Den associated with Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and the Civil War. Very, very bloody battles there around about the Devil's Den area. So there were a lot of results that weren't even what I was looking for, and it made it harder. But the best thing I could find that was kind of spewed across everywhere, it was creepypasta it was copy paste you could tell it was the same sentence on every damn website but essentially it's been called the devil's den since the earliest settlers and they called it that because there's like 60 cracks in a wall and that would be a great place for the devil to live i mean it's kind of it's kind of weak and i feel confident that there was more to it than that um but i can't find that story so it's called devil's den because there's a crap ton of caves in a really awesome geologic formation in a valley and i think the greatest part about that story is when the ccc was there when those workers were there building that and it's a really cool story man if you think about it we're in the depression era people are starving to death and you know the government put together a public assistance program but it was like you got to work for it bro you're going to show up we'll pay you a dollar a day which was a decent amount of money at that time and you are going to get free room board lodging food you're going to get a uniform. You're not tearing up your own clothes. You got a place to stay. We're going to give you all the food you need. You put in the work and you're putting together something that's going to last for generations for all the public to enjoy. And you get to send all that money back home to your family that's starving. You know, it was really cool. I mean, that right there is a hella cool idea for a public assistance program. Make the option there to go to work and the work that you're doing is actually creating infrastructure for the very country that you're living in that will make it better when you finally climb out. It actually worked out pretty well. You know, people like to get politics involved and they like to try to talk about how the New Deal was all terrible politically. Maybe it was, I don't know, because I hate politics and I could care freaking less. But what I do know is that seems like something a logical human being would do. Hey, we're going to print money that don't exist, which back then they may have still been on the gold and silver standard. I'd have to look into that. Um, yeah, almost for sure. The silver standard, I think, dropped in the 50s or 60s. Anyway, that's all coming straight out of my butt. Don't quote me. Um, but regardless, we're going to make a way to assist people, but the people are going to put in some work. And that work is actually going to be invested back into the infrastructure, which is going to help a country come out of a depression. It just seems like a lot, any logical, smart human being would be like, that sounds like a pretty good idea for a country going through dire state straits like that. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, if you disagree, I don't care. Don't tell me about it because I don't do politics. Anyway, they had. Okay, this is the best part. 
they had a newsletter, like all these camps printed newsletters that they would send to the other CCC camps. It was kind of like a little social thing that they had going on. And they would have these newsletters that they would make for their own camp about the happenings, about the camp. And anyway, Devil's Den, Devil, Devil's Den, CCC camp, their newsletter was called, get this, The Voice of Satan. And I cannot think of anything that I love anymore right now than the fact that their newsletter showed up at other camps and emblazoned across the top in bold font was the voice of Satan. And then you drop down to the very first paragraph and it's probably like on Saturday night, Jimmy Smith was seen talking to a tall, dark man in an overcoat at a crossroad. He hasn't been seen since church league softball starts Sunday. You know, like the voice of Satan. I, I love it. I can just envision it and I'm going to have to dig through the archives now and see if I can find some examples of that paper because I imagine it is glorious to read through. There is a lot of history there on that note. A lot of the CC camp, CCC camp, like some of the ruins and foundations are right there on a little hike, an interpretive hike inside the park. It's super neat. You can go walk around in it. Maya and I did, my daughter and I did. Um, and it's super cool. Like there's a lot of things you can still see there. Plus all the original stonework, the original like park facility buildings are there. There's a chimney from, I believe it was the mess hall is located right there in the middle of one of the awesome open areas right along the creek where you can throw a frisbee play baseball like all the kids are out there playing kicking a soccer ball around people are out there having a good time and there's this big chimney that i believe was the mess hall but i know the chimney's there it was a part of the original camp so if you're into history at all there's a lot of history there um guys there's a lot going on like my daughter and i one of the things we love to do is hike the creeks all over northwest arkansas and look for fossils because y'all we are replete with fossils. This part of the country was under an inland sea like 330 million years ago or something. Geology's not my thing, but I'm pretty sure that was the time frame. Like up in the Boston Mountains on some of the road cuts for Interstate 49, geologists love that because if you go up there and dig around in the right spots, you'll come away with shark's teeth in the mountains. Literally the interior highlands of America, there's shark's teeth in the mountains, the tops of the mountains. It was an inland sea at one time. The Ozarks are limestone and they are filled with fossils and we love hiking looking for fossils and y'all we have got bucket loads of fossils crinoids you name it all kinds of invertebrates we've got some stuff we got something that looks like a freaking honestly it looks like a little baby chicken in an egg and it might be a little baby dinosaur in an egg you know dinosaurs are basically hair you know feathered birds i mean that's something else dinosaurs probably had feathers by the way anyway moving on they're in the bird family but fascinating stuff and so we like to go hike the creeks and there's not a better creek to hike in northwest arkansas than lee creek on the fossil flats monument trail y'all you go right across the fossil flats you can get down and look at these bluff faces that are exposed and there's fossils all in the bluff face you look for the little rocks in the creek and there's all these fossils it's so cool if your kids like finding stuff like that you can hike around and check out the fossil flats you can go all and up and down lee creek and you're going to find fossils everywhere you look it's so cool and it's so satisfying for kids because they find something and it's like bam i have in my hand something ancient you know and it don't matter what you want to try to believe about when the earth was created or blah, blah 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 it doesn't matter this crap doesn't exist anymore it's super freaking old no matter how you count time in the eons in antiquity it's old it's non-existent, it's extinct, and these kids are holding it, and it's like a connection to them, to a whole nother world, and you have no idea 
how far that might go for them in their future, what kind of interest that may spark in their little brain and cause them to do something just absolute fulfilling, awesome career somewhere down the road, chase down a path that they could have never imagined. Get your kids involved and get them out there. And there are fossils all over the place for them to find. My daughter, we were up there looking for fossils and we found some. But I think the thing that we found that like she loved the very most was the Beaver War Club. Okay. And she also got a beaver hiking stick out of the deal. Okay, there's beavers everywhere. And they're chomping on everything. Well, we found this like big piece of wood that's literally like the size of a mace. You know, you guys into any kind of like fantasy, Lord of the Rings, medieval times, anything like that. You know what a mace is. This thing was like, it's like a war club. And that's what my daughter, she's eight. First thing she picked up on, she's like, this is like a war club. And I was like, what? And I looked at it. I was like, you're right. It is like a war club. And anyway, we know it as the beaver war club now because it was clearly chewed to that size and shape by a beaver. And there was this whole backstory that was put together over the course of that afternoon about the beaver wars. Okay, and this beaver war club was left behind by, you know, a beaver who maybe didn't make it through the wars. But anyway, it's so much fun. And we also got this really long stick. Y'all, this was like a beaver was making a hiking pole for someone. It is the perfect long, straight hiking stick. And it was literally stripped from top to bottom with beaver teeth. You can see the beaver teeth marks in the wood. So we took that stick and we brought it home with us and just... We set it out in the garage to dry a few months ago, and it's been drying for a few months. Kind of forgot about it. But just last weekend, we got it out. We figured out the size would be just right for her. We cut the end off of it that doesn't have all the beaver teeth marks on it. We left those because that's a cool part of the story. And we even, like, nailed this little, like, emblem that I got from the National Parks. It's a National Parks Pass, and it's a metal emblem. And we nailed it to the top of her hiking stick, and we're going to further decorate it. We're going to figure out if we're going to use some leather or some paracord to wrap her little handle on it. Haven't really decided on that yet. But how cool is that, y'all? That's the stuff that makes your kids want to be with you. That's the stuff that excites their minds and gets them interested and engaged with you. Like, that kind of stuff's so important, and I'm so thankful for it. And, like, state parks are a great place to explore a lot of that stuff. So if you're into fossils, if your kids are into fossils, if you're into hiking, Devil's Den has all of that. And it's absolutely amazing. Like, I have all these stories. I could sit here and tell you stories all night about stuff I've done at Devil's Den. Exploring the caves was awesome, but I'm not going to tell you all about that because that'd just be kind of crappy since you can't go do it yourself now. That was a long time ago. It was super cool. But the hikes are awesome. The mountain biking's awesome. The fossil hunting's awesome. Like, just for a day at a family picnic, it's all there. The camping, the hiking, whatever. It's all there. And it's super cool. To wrap up tonight's episode, because we're pushing on the last half of our episode, but I do want to go over the mountain biking trails with you guys. I'll be the first to tell you right up front, I'm not a mountain biker. I have a mountain bike. Got a cool old trek that I bought off of Facebook Marketplace. By the way, you probably heard about that episode if you've been around a while, Um, which is a great way to buy them. By the way, get on the Marketplace, vet someone out, and go get you a steal on a bike. But I'm not a mountain biker. I'll be the first to tell you that my knees and my shoulders concern me. Like I've seen some of these guys riding some of these mountain bike trails, some of these really technical downhill runs. And I'm like, that is a one-way ticket to the morgue for old Justin. I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't even want to do that. I don't need that kind of adrenaline in my life, right? I don't need that. For any of you people that do, you need to know about the, the monument trails here 
at Devil's Den. You need to know about the trails at Devil's Den. For anyone outside of Arkansas, if you're in Arkansas, you know about them. Because mountain biking was like born at Devil's Den in Arkansas. And they have a festival there every year for a billion years now. It's a big dang deal. But anyone outside of the state that's into mountain biking, y'all, this is a destination for you. Like, I mean, I'm saying it's like a legitimate destination that you would want to check out. People come from all over the nation to come check it out. So I'm going to go over it with you guys real quick. So what you might ask, first and foremost, what is a monument trail? Monument, an enduring, outstanding, and memorable example of something great or notable. That's like the more um, actual definition. But we go down another line. This is Monument Trails in Arkansas State Parks. And it says, thanks to the strength of public, private, and nonprofit partnerships, a shared vision brought Monument Trails to life. Monument Trails are world-class destinations showcasing the natural scenic beauty of the state parks there within, while exemplifying the highest quality in trail craftsmanship, innovation, beauty, and sustainability. They are the result of generosity, the generosity of the Walton Family Foundation in collaboration with the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation and Arkansas State Parks. These multi-use trails offer enduring, memorable opportunities to cyclists, runners, and hikers of all skill levels. They're awesome. In a word, they're awesome. I've hiked a lot of monument trails in this state, and they're amazing. Some of the ones we have here in Devil's Den are just killer, y'all. Like, there's so much terrain. There's so much different topography. I say terrain. Of course, there's terrain. There's so much differing terrain. There's so much geology. There's so many caves and, and overlooks and rock house type of shelters, etc., etc. It's awesome. But for you mountain bikers out there who have been feeling left out, because I'm not really into mountain biking. I don't talk a lot about it. There's no better place for me to talk about mountain biking than right here and give you guys something to think about. So I'm actually going to go over some of these for you, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. I'm going to pick out of the easy, I'm going to pick out of intermediate, and pick out of very hard um, to kind of give you guys an idea of the spray, like the array of options you have to bike out here. And you should consider getting online and checking it out for yourself because there's a whole lot of information. There's a lot going on with the biking trails here. But for example, easy, this is the Fossil Flats Trail. It is three, four, or a six-mile loop. The trailhead is the Fossil Flats Trailhead in Camp Area A. The elevation change is 1,284 feet. And the description is, The Fossil Flats Trail was created as a multi-use trail in the late 1980s. It is the park's main mountain bike trail, but is great for hiking as well. It is named for the flat, fossil-filled limestone that is found in the creek. The trail offers many things to see, including bluffs, wildflowers, and creek crossings. It's an easy loop trail with options, 2.4-mile outlaw loop, 4.2-mile sawmill loop, or the entire 6-mile racer's hill loop. From intermediate, let's look at Devil's Racetrack. Okay, Devil's Bathtub, Devil's Icebox, Devil's Butt Crack. Let's go with the Devil's Racetrack. Link, 3.7 miles, 3.75 miles, point-to-point, intermediate. Mayfield Trailhead near Highway 220. Camp Area E Trailhead and Camp Area A via the Gold Brick Trail. Elevation change, 729 feet. Flowing cross-country trail across almost the length of the park, featuring rock bluffs, historic CCC remnants, and a seasonal waterfall near the north end. The trail has three main segments, the southern terminus to Area E, 1.1 miles, Area E to Gold Brick, 1.5 miles, Gold Brick to Fossil Flats, 1.1 mile, and numerous alternate jump and feature lines for the more adventurous rider. All right, so that's the one for intermediate that I'm going to pick from, and we're going to do one more, 
and it is going to be very hard. And it's called the Orville Trail. It is 1.25 miles point to point. You access it via Fossil Flats Trailhead in Camp Area A. The elevation change is 463 feet, and it is a one-way, bike-only, challenging technical downhill with switchback turns. It offers the best of modern trail building. Rock gardens flow into natural drops and raw lines mixed with built flowed turns. B-lines are available. I imagine you mountain bikers know what a B-line is. I don't. Anyway, we have a whole array of mountain biking options on those trails, and people are loving them. People come from all over to see them. So if you or any of my listeners out there in the rest of the United States or hell, over in Europe, or in Australia, or even over on the Asian subcontinent. Y'all, we've got listeners literally now from all over the world, except still Antarctica. But you know, there's only what? A few, at best, 100 people or less down there on research stations at any given time? You know, I'll forgive it for now. I guess I understand. But we're being heard the world over at this point. So any of you guys that love to mountain bike, come check out Devil's Den mountain biking trails because they are from all accounts that i can tell you from not just what this literature is telling you but people i know that mountain bike because i'm kind of plugged into a lot of people in this state at this point it's first class stuff it's first class stuff they're very proud of it and according to everyone i know they should be so it's something you should consider checking out anyway if you're just into hiking y'all we've got trails that range from easy to strenuous from 0.25 mile loop, which is just checking out some of the old CCC remnants, to the lake trail that just takes you around the trail. You can go the Devil's Den Trail, and it's going to take you up, and you get to see some of the, well, for example, Devil's Den Cave, the Devil's Ice Box, Twin Falls, Cold Springs, and more. It's a popular trail and can be crowded on weekends. The caves are currently closed to protect bats in their habitat. The Lee Creek Trail will take you up and down Lee Creek, and you want to talk about fine fossils. Yellow Yellow Rock Trail is one I suggest you check out. It's a three-mile loop. It's 300 feet of elevation change, and then it's 100 feet from the upper trailhead. And it is an original CCC-constructed trail from the 1930s, and it's a part of the National Trails System. A main feature is Yellow Rock Overlook, offering an exceptional view of the Lee Creek Valley. It's an amazing view. Yellow Rock has amazing views. Check that out. And if you're like a a kind of a through hiker kind of person or someone training for a major through hike, the Butterfield Trail may be for you at 15 miles. It's got a crap ton of elevation change. It depends on the section you take. If you do it all, it's not even listed. Maybe you can find it on all trails. But this trail is named for the Butterfield Stagecoach, which ran through the area in 1858 to 1861. The trail begins and ends in Devil's Den State Park, but more than 10 miles of it are in the Ozark National Forest. If you wish to hike only a portion of the trail, the park staff can suggest alternate routes suitable for day hikes. A lot of amazing hiking in Devil's Den. And you know, I'm going to wrap up because we're really wrapping it up now. Devil's Den, I think I've made it pretty clear. They have a little bit of everything for everyone. There's great camping. There's great swimming. There's great fishing. There's great photography, mountain biking, hiking. It's all there. But I'm going to wrap up with a little thing that you need to check out, a little location, a little destination you need to check out that's right there close to Devil's Den, but not actually within the park's bounds. And it's called Moonshiner's Cave. And if you Google it, 
you will find the trailhead for Moonshiner's Cave. It can be a little bit of a challenge to find the actual trailhead. You kind of have to park in this little parking gravel area and find your way to a certain road sign and then take the beaten trail that you can see from that road sign down the hill. But what you will find at the end of a short downhill hike that's pretty easy going down, it's a little bit strenuous coming up, not that bad, is an old rock outcropping overhang that has been rocked in at some point in history. It is called Moonshiner's Cave. By some accounts, moonshine was made there um, back in the 1800s. Um, but that's also been called into question by actual historians and, say, even geologists who are like, the water doesn't run constantly enough. It has a little waterfall. If you go when it's rainy, you'll have a waterfall pouring off the ledge right next to the cave. It's cool as heck, y'all. It's cool as heck. It's just not really a cave. It's an overlook or an overhang, like a rock shelter, but it was bricked in by hand with natural stone rocks were built up to create like a closed enclosed shelter at some point in history um historians and geologists alike are like there's not enough water that stays running here year round for this to really maybe be a moonshiner's cave so eh, maybe it was something else too y'all we had civil civil war activity in this state it could have been something that happened during the civil war or it could even go further back i know of other rocked in caves that i'm not privy to disclose to you that don't have a real provenance they don't have a great description of where they came from and who made them um and some of them are just stacked stoned with no mortar this one i believe has some mortar if i recall correctly my daughter loved that little hike down to it too but moonshiner's cave is something you should also check out if you go up to devil's den state parks not within the park boundaries but it's a really cool quick little hike to see a little piece of history that's a little bit mysterious nobody really knows the true story behind it and um i thank you your families your travel companions, I think you guys will all enjoy it. So in the end, I highly suggest everyone checks out Devil's Den State Park. Check out a lot of our Arkansas State Parks, guys. We got some great ones. We really do. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff in Arkansas, but there's a lot of great stuff too. It's just like anywhere else in the world. We got a lot of great stuff. And when it comes to outdoors, we have some of the best stuff in this whole country and a high concentration of it, a heavy concentration of it right there in northwest Arkansas. So come out and check out Devil's Den State Park. Think about getting into geocaching with your kids if you need to find a way to engage them and get them off the couch. And consider being, you know, maybe a little avocational archaeologist or at least supporting the guys that are out there doing it because that's just a really cool thing where we're learning more and more about our shared history every day. Anyway, I have rambled on and this has turned into like a way longer episode than I expected. Thank you guys for sticking around through all my rambling. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do enjoy it, as I always ask, and guys, I cannot emphasize enough, please, please, please go leave a review. Just take a couple of minutes and leave as many stars as you want. I prefer five, but go leave as many stars as you want and leave a little review for people to read. So when they're scrolling through their podcast and they're going, I want to find a travel podcast. I want to find a hiking podcast. And they see wayward stories. They can read a couple of reviews and say, I think I'll give this one a shot. And maybe they'll give it a shot, stick around for a little while, and maybe they'll need become fellow listeners to you. So give us a rating. Give us a few stars. Go out there and share our stuff if you want to. And I would so appreciate that, y'all. Again, you can check out patreon.com forward slash wayward stories if you have any interest in supporting us that way. Um, and other than that, thank you guys for being patient with me over this last few months as I'm going through school and sometimes dropping older episodes as classics to help me get by. Sometimes there's even dark weeks that I don't anticipate and I really appreciate 
all of you guys support i support or i i appreciate all of your understanding and i just appreciate all of you that listen you guys we made some great connections through this and i i wouldn't have it any other way that's what i do this for that's what it's all about um if you want to get in touch with me and please do i love hearing from you guys my wayward story at gmail.com you can find us on facebook twitter you can do all of that through the website waywardstories.com and other than that guys i think that's gonna wrap us up for the week thanks for coming back i look forward to seeing you guys again here in a couple of weeks and until then you guys get outside and find something to do with yourselves and while you're out there remember to be good to each other 